Chapter thirty six, part one of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years Recollections of P. T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betty B. Struggles and Triumphs of P. T. Barnum. Chapter thirty six. More about the Museum. Part one. On the 13th of October, 1860, the American Museum was the scene of another reopening, which was, in fact, the commencement of the fall dramatic season, the summer months having been devoted to pantomime. A grand flourish of trumpets in the way of newspaper advertisements and flaming posters drew a crowded house. Among other attractions, it was announced that Mr. Barnum would introduce a mysterious novelty never before seen in that establishment. I appeared upon the stage behind a small table, in front of which was nailed a white sack, on which was inscribed in large letters, The Cat Let Out of the Bag. I then stated that, having spent two of the summer months in the country, leaving the museum in charge of Mr. Greenwood, he had purchased a curiosity with which he was not satisfied. But, for my part, I thought he had received his money's worth, and I proposed to exhibit it to the audience for the purpose of getting their opinion on the subject. I stated that a farmer came in from the country and said he had got a cherry-colored cat at home, which he would like to sell, that Mr. Greenwood gave him a writing promising to pay him $25 for such a cat delivered in good health, provided it was not artificially colored, and that the cat was then in the bag in front of the table, ready for exhibition. Whereupon, my assistant drew from the bag a common black cat, and I informed the audience that when the farmer brought his cherry-colored cat, he quietly remarked to Mr. Greenwood that, of course, he meant a cat of the color of black cherries. The laughter that followed this narration was uproarious, and the audience unanimously voted that the cherry-colored cat, all things considered, was well worth $25. The cat, adorned with a collar bearing the inscription, The Cherry-Colored Cat, was then placed in the cage of the Happy Family, and the story getting into the newspapers, it became another advertisement of the museum. In 1861, I learned that some fishermen at the mouth of the St. Lawrence had succeeded in capturing a living white whale, and I was also informed that a whale of this kind, if placed in a box lined with seaweed and partially filled with salt water, could be transported by land to a considerable distance and be kept alive. It was simply necessary that an attendant supplied with a barrel of salt water and a sponge should keep the mouth and blowhole of the whale constantly moist. It seemed incredible that a living whale could be expressed by railroad on a five days journey, and although I knew nothing of the white whale or its habits, since I had never seen one, I determined to experiment in that direction. Landsman as I was, I believed that I was quite as competent as the St. Lawrence fisherman to superintend the capture and transportation of a live white whale. When I had fully made up my mind to attempt the task, I made every provision for the expedition and took precaution against every conceivable contingency. I determined upon the capture and transport to my museum of at least two living whales, and prepared in the basement of the building a brick and cement tank, forty feet long 
and eighteen feet wide for the reception of the marine monsters when this was done taking two trusty assistants i started upon my whaling expedition going by rail to quebec and thence by the grand trunk railroad ninety miles to wells river where i chartered a sloop to elbow island ile aux coudres in the st lawrence river and found the place populated by canadian french people of the most ignorant and dirty description they were hospitable but frightfully filthy and they gained their livelihood by farming and fishing immense quantities of maple sugar are made there and in exploring about the island we saw hundreds of birch bark buckets suspended to the trees to catch the sap after numerous consultations extending over three whole days with a party of twenty-four fishermen whose gibberish was almost as untranslatable as it was unbearable i succeeded in contracting for their services to capture for me alive and unharmed a couple of white whales scores of which could at all times be discovered by their spouting within sight of the island i was to pay these men a stipulated price per day for their labor and if they secured the whales they were to have a liberal bonus the plan decided upon was to plant in the river a crawl composed of stakes driven down in the form of a v leaving the broad end open for the whales to enter this was done in a shallow place with the point of the crawl toward shore and if by chance one or more whales should enter the trap at high water my fishermen were to occupy the entrance with their boats and keep up a tremendous splashing and noise till the tide receded when the frightened whales would find themselves nearly high and dry or with too little water to enable them to swim and their capture would be the next thing in order this was to be effected by securing a slip noose of stout rope over their tails and towing them to the seaweed lined boxes in which they were to be transported to new york all this was simple enough on paper but several days elapsed before a single spout was seen inside the crawl though scores of whales were constantly around and near it in time it became exceedingly aggravating to see the whales glide so near the trap without going into it and our patience was sorely tried one day a whale actually went into the crawl and the fishermen proposed to capture it but i wanted another and while we waited for number two to go in number one knowing the proverb probably and having an eye to his own interests went out two days afterwards i was awakened at daylight by a great noise and amid the clamor of many voices i caught the cheering news that two whales were even then within the crawl and hastily dressing myself i took a boat for the exciting scene the real difficulty which was to get the whales into the trap was now over and the details of capture and transportation could safely be left to my trusty assistants and the fishermen what they were to do until the tide went out and thereafter was once more fully explained and after depositing money enough to pay the bill if the capture was successful i started at once for quebec there i learned by telegraph that both whales had been caught boxed and put on board sloop for the nearest point where they could be transshipped in the cars i had made every arrangement with the railway officials and had engaged a special car for the precious and curious freight elated as i was at the result of this novel enterprise i had no idea of hiding my light under a bushel and i immediately wrote a full account of the expedition 
its intention and its success for publication in the quebec and montreal newspapers i also prepared a large number of brief notices which i left at every station on the line instructing telegraph operators to take off all whaling messages that passed over the wires to new york and to inform their fellow townsmen at what hour the whales would pass through each place the result of these arrangements may be imagined at every station crowds of people came to the cars to see the whales which were traveling by land to barnum's museum and those who did not see the monsters with their own eyes at least saw someone who had seen them and i thus secured a tremendous advertisement seven hundred miles long for the american museum when i arrived in new york a dozen dispatches had come from the whaling expedition and they continued to come every few hours these i bulletined in front of the museum and sent copies to the papers the excitement was intense and when at last these marine monsters arrived and were swimming in the tank that had been prepared for them anxious thousands literally rushed to see the strangest curiosities ever exhibited in new york thus was my first whaling expedition a great success but i did not know how to feed or to take care of the monsters and moreover they were in fresh water and this with the bad air in the basement may have hastened their death which occurred a few days after their arrival but not before thousands of people had seen them not at all discouraged i resolved to try again my plan now was to connect the water of new york bay with the basement of the museum by means of iron pipes under the street and a steam engine on the dock to pump the water this i actually did at a cost of several thousand dollars with an extra thousand to the aldermanic ring for the privilege and i constructed another tank in the second floor of the building this tank was built of slate and french glass plates six feet long five feet broad and one inch thick imported expressly for the purpose and the tank when completed was twenty-four feet square and cost four thousand dollars it was kept constantly supplied with what would be called hibernically fresh salt water and inside of it i soon had two white whales caught as the first had been hundreds of miles below quebec to which city they were carried by a sailing vessel and from thence were brought by railway to new york of this whole enterprise i confess i was very proud that i had originated it and brought it to such successful conclusion it was a very great sensation and it added thousands of dollars to my treasury the whales however soon died their sudden and immense popularity was too much for them and i then dispatched agents to the coast of labrador and not many weeks thereafter i had two more live whales disporting themselves in my monster aquarium certain envious people started the report that my whales were only porpoises but this petty malice was turned to good account for professor agassiz of harvard university came to see them and gave me a certificate that they were genuine white whales and with this endorsement i published far and wide the tank which i had built in the basement served for yet a more interesting exhibition on the twelfth of august eighteen sixty one i began to exhibit the first and only genuine hippopotamus that had ever been seen in america and for several weeks the museum was thronged by the curious who came to see the monster i advertised him extensively and ingeniously as the great behemoth of the scriptures giving a full description of the animal and his habits 
and thousands of cultivated people biblical students and others were attracted to this novel exhibition there was quite as much excitement in the city over this wonder in the animal creation as there was in london when the first hippopotamus was placed in the zoological collection in regent's park having a stream of salt water at my command at every high tide i was enabled to make splendid additions to the beautiful aquarium which i was the first to introduce into this country i not only procured living sharks porpoises seahorses and many rare fish from the sea in the vicinity of new york but in the summer of eighteen sixty one i dispatched a fishing smack and crew to the island of bermuda and its neighborhood whence they brought scores of specimens of the beautiful angelfish and numerous other tropical fish of brilliant colors and unique forms these fish were a great attraction to all classes and especially to naturalists and others who commended me for serving the ends of science as well as amusement but as cold weather approached these tropical fish began to die and before the following spring they were all gone i therefore replenished this portion of my aquaria during the summer and for several summers in succession by sending a special vessel to the gulf for specimens these operations were very expensive but i really did not care for the cost if i could only secure valuable attractions in the same year i bought out the aquarial gardens in boston and soon after removed the collection to the museum i had now the finest assemblage of fresh as well as salt-water fish ever exhibited and with the standing offer of one hundred dollars for every living brook trout weighing four pounds or more which might be brought to me i soon had three or four of these beauties which trout fishermen from all parts of the country came to new york to see but the trout department of my museum required so much care and was attended with such constant risks that i finally gave it up in december eighteen sixty one i made one of my most palpable hits i was visited at the museum by a most remarkable dwarf who was a sharp intelligent little fellow with a deal of drollery and wit he had a splendid head was perfectly formed was very attractive and in short for a showman he was a perfect treasure his name he told me was george washington morrison nutt and his father was major rodney and nutt a substantial farmer of manchester new hampshire i was not long in dispatching an efficient agent to manchester and in overcoming the competition with other showmen who were equally eager to secure this extraordinary pygmy the terms upon which i engaged him for three years were so large that he was christened the thirty thousand dollar nut i in the meantime conferring upon him the title of commodore as soon as i engaged him placards posters and the columns of the newspapers proclaimed the presence of commodore nut at the museum i also procured for the commodore a pair of shetland ponies miniature coachman and footman in livery gold-mounted harness and an elegant little carriage which when closed represented a gigantic english walnut the little commodore attracted great attention and grew rapidly in public favor general tom thumb was then traveling in the south and west for some years he had not been exhibited in new york and during these years he had increased considerably in rotundity and had changed much in his general appearance it was a singular fact however that commodore nutt was almost a facsimile of general tom thumb as he looked half a dozen years before consequently very many of my patrons 
not making allowance for the time which had elapsed since they had last seen the general declared that i was trying to play mrs gamp with my mrs harris that there was in fact no such person as commodore nutt and that i was exhibiting my old friend tom thumb under a new name the mistake was very natural and to me it was very laughable for the more i tried to convince people of their error the more they winked and looked wise and said it's pretty well done but you can't take me in commodore nutt enjoyed the joke very much he would sometimes half admit the deception simply to add to the bewilderment of the doubting portion of my visitors after he had been in the museum a few weeks i took the commodore to bridgeport to spend a couple of days by way of relaxation many of the citizens of bridgeport who had known tom thumb from his birth would salute the commodore as the general tom thumb the little fellow would return these salutes for he delighted in keeping up the illusion going into a crowded barber shop one morning with the little commodore we met my friend mr gideon thompson who was sitting there and who called out good morning charlie how are you when did you get home i'm quite well thank you and i arrived last night responded the commodore with due gravity i've got a horse now that will beat yours said mr thompson he must be pretty fast then well charlie i'll drive out by your mother's the first fine day and give you a trial all right said little nut but you had better not wager too much on your fast horse for you know mine is some pumpkins well uncle gid i exclaimed you are had this time this little gentleman is not general tom thumb but commodore nut what roared friend gid do you think i'm an infernal fool why i knew charlie stratton years before you ever saw him didn't i general no one in the room suspected that my little friend was any other than general tom thumb till mr william bassett the general's brother-in-law came in and remarked the wonderful resemblance to our little charlie as he looked years ago is this not the general inquired half a dozen astonished men who were speedily assured he was not but was quite another person this gave rise to a proposition to exhibit the commodore to the general's mother and a coach was procured and mr bassett the commodore and i went to mrs stratton's house when we arrived the commodore shouted out how are you mother but the mother of all persons in bridgeport was not to be deceived though she expressed her astonishment at the very striking likeness the commodore bore to her son as he once looked mrs bassett concurred in the testimony and said the commodore looked so much like her brother that she was loath to let him go it is no wonder that other people were deceived by the resemblance end of chapter thirty six part one